You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch. Sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those Voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today... My hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch. It's so great to be back. Joining me in just a moment will be Robin Lorenzini. And Robin is the president of the Lorenzini Family Foundation. Um, Robin's work in philanthropy has impacted not only women, but the lives of children, young adults, minority communities, uh, the technology industry, and sports. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. Uh, Remember to stay with us during the breaks where you'll hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors, bringing you the latest in technology, finance, marketing, health, law, nonprofit, and military affairs. And I'm also very excited to announce this evening that we're going to be launching a brand new segment, and it's going to be our Lifestyle Watch with the addition of Sherry Morrison, who is a Philadelphia local who spent most of her life and her entire career in the hospitality, food and beverage industry 
as an entrepreneur and a business development consultant. So I'm really excited for this addition to our show every week as we hope to shine a light on this particular industry that's been very hard hit during COVID. If you'd like to learn more about our watch team, you feel free to email Laura at womentowatch.net and be sure to visit our website to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss the show and our newsletter to stay in the loop on all things related to Women to Watch and see who's coming up each week. So now I'm very excited and thrilled to welcome to the show Robin Lorenzini. Robin, thanks for joining me. Susan, it's so great to be here. Thank you. And I understand you're joining us from beautiful Palm Springs. How is it there today? It's incredibly windy. Last night, actually, we oh. were we were walking around kind of singing the song to the Wizard of Oz, expecting to see a house go by <laughs> us at, at any given time. But it's going to oh clear gosh. up and it's and it's it's wonderful to see the sunshine. Oh, I bet. I bet. Um, especially, you know, to, to be able to be outdoors today, I think, is such a gift um, such with a what gift. the last year has been like. Yeah. Um, listen, I'm excited to dive right in and, and talk about your your background and your upbringing. And it's it's quite eclectic, I'd say. Um, you know, you've you've done a lot of things in your I'm going to say your short life. Right. Because yes. <laughs> there's still a lot to come. There's still a lot to come. Um, and I understand, you, you know, you were born in Colombia, but moved to Hawaii at two months old. I what, did. what brought your family? What brought your family there? So my parents uh, were married in uh, when my father was in his Ph.D. program at Yale. And then he went to work for the University of Hawaii system where they had my three older brothers. And then uh, my dad was asked to go and pick up Sergeant Shriver at the airport one day in order to drive him to some event in Hawaii. And, and Sergeant Shriver said, hey, we're thinking about setting up the Peace Corps down in South America. Do you want to go do it? And my dad, thinking it was a great idea to take his wife and three sons that are ages three, two, and newborn down there, uh, they wow. headed down and and he set it up and that's where I was born and uh, then not long after that he was done with his tenure there and went back to work at the UH system. Wow, so I know that you know your time in Hawaii was between two months and eight years old. Correct. Um, yeah, and it wasn't an easy adjustment for you. It was not. Um, yeah. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit, that isolation that you felt. So it's actually really very funny. The the recent book that has come out, um, Codebreaker, which is talking about uh, Je Jennifer Doudna and her work with uh, CRISPR technology, the gene splicing, yes. which is truly incredible. Right. Um, my father actually told me that she and I used to play together because her father worked at the University of Hawaii Hilo, and we would go and hang out on the campus and play together. And I've been reading her book, and the first few pages, it's like reading my own story. It was um, the, and let me make it very, very clear that, you know, I am a privileged white woman in this society, so I have had reaped the benefits of that. My first few years of my life, I was absolutely a minority, and it was a very challenging situation to be in. Um, 
and one that has shaped how I feel about dealing with communities and inclusion and diversity throughout my entire life. But I was um, what they referred to as Howley, and that was it was a very, very derogatory term at the time and uh, made me feel um, very much on the outside, not only uh, in terms of friends, but physically. I was very aware of my differences as a light color skin and even down to, you know, having um, hair on my arms was something that was an oddity and that that uh, people made fun of on a regular basis. So it it shaped it definitely shaped how I felt about being aware of different people when they are in the room and always wanting to be welcoming towards them. Robin, did you talk to your parents about how you were feeling when you when you were young? That's an excellent question. I absolutely did. And it was one of those circumstances where um, they tried to toe the line between understanding how challenging it was and at the same time turning it into opportunities for me to build up my resilience and to build up my strength. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom actually at the time was decided to go back and get her PhD and she was doing it in linguistics. And so she, her PhD was comparing what's referred to as pidgin English, which was the form of English that I spoke in school. Um, And don't ask me to repeat it now because I've completely lost it. But it was (laughs) it was definitely a slang language that you spoke to in order to fit in with the other kids and comparing that with proper pop, quote unquote, proper English. So she Mm -hmm. would I remember coming home and we would be talking about things and she would also ask me to translate certain sentences into pidgin for her in order to be able to bring it into her doctoral dissertation. Wow. You know, I, I asked that question because I think it's it's so interesting to me how often as children, when mm-hmm. we're really struggling with something emotionally, we don't bring it to our parents and, right. and tell them about it. Right. And then it, you know, then it can fester over years and years and years where I think if we're open about it from the beginning, um, they can help us sort through it That's if we have in, that support in, yeah. system. That's incredibly important to say, and I really appreciate you bringing that up. I think that that applies not only to children, but that applies to us women in our in our um, adult lives also. Right. And how we show up for each other and how we talk about um, what is going on. It was uh, it was. we didn't really much have a choice at the time. We lived in on Oahu for a while, and Oahu has uh, Punahou, which is still one of the best private schools in the country, and has come to more uh, fame because that's where President Obama went. Um, we couldn't have afforded Punahou by any stretch of the imagination, and then we moved to Hilo, and the school systems were. Um, they were a they were a social war zone in a lot of ways, and I was very it was very lucky that we actually got out of there and that I was able to um, move into a school system. Which actually, let me be very clear, we moved to upstate New York in the middle of winter, which I don't recommend. 
Um, and from there, I went from being a minority to everyone looked like me. Absolutely everyone. Mm-hmm. And the, the culture wow. shock involved in that was was also challenging. Wow. That's so fascinating, this this part of your life story, Robin, especially, particularly with what's happening, you know, in our country today. So mm-hmm. I want to talk about that a little bit more. Um, we're going to go into our first break. Stay with us for our Watch Team segment, and we'll be back with Robin Lorenzini, again, the president of the Lorenzini Family Foundation. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Last week, we talked about the value of good prenatal care. Consider visiting your obstetrician before you try to conceive because starting prenatal vitamins and folic acid three months in advance decreases risk for birth defects in baby's brain and spinal cord, which start developing in the first three to four weeks of pregnancy. Make sure you review all the meds you take with your obstetrician, even if it's over-the-counter, including supplements, probiotics, even your prenatal vitamins. They're not all the same. Common blood tests during pregnancy? We check to see if the mom's Rh negative, especially with the first baby. We also check for immunity to rubella, chickenpox, hepatitis B, and do extensive testing for STDs, including HIV and syphilis, and check for normal thyroid function. Vaccinations? The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommend the COVID vaccine be given to pregnant women and mothers who are nursing. You need Tdap, tetanus, diphtheria, and whooping cough with every pregnancy to share immunity with the baby. Grandparents and babysitters, too. The flu vaccine is essential. During pregnancy, the flu can be deadly. Here are some tips that decrease your risk for infertility. Excess weight can cause irregular periods and decrease ovulation in women and lower sperm count in men. And if either man or woman is overweight, it increases risk for miscarriage. The ideal diet, high in protein, lots of fruits and veggies, and complex carbs. Studies show a clear advantage when you limit simple carbs like cookies and cake. Stop smoking. It decreases blood flow and builds up chemicals in the fluid of semen and around the egg. Limit alcohol. Both members of the couple should max at four drinks a week. Daily drinking up to pregnancy, man or woman, increases the risk for miscarriage. Caffeine, about 12 ounces of coffee per day max. Caffeine is also in tea, energy drinks, and chocolate. Listen to the show on yourradiodoctor.net. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. I was doing some research this weekend about new technology trends that are being fast-forwarded due to COVID-19 and came across some articles from 2019. Many of the articles talked about technology advancements that would begin rolling out in 2020. The great news for us is that since some of these technologies were already in the works, they were accelerated and completely rolled out at a time when we really needed them and being improved in 2021. In my opinion, healthcare advancements far surpassed many of the advancements that we saw. Take telehealth and telemedicine as example. First, telemedicine. Telemedicine uses electronic communication and software to provide clinical services to patients without an in-person visit. It can be used for such things as follow-up visits, management of chronic conditions, medication management, mental health services, and many other clinical services that can be provided remotely over secure video and audio connections. What I like about telemedicine is that I can schedule a virtual doctor's appointment directly with my doctor no matter where I am. 
This acceleration in technology means that if I'm on vacation and I feel ill, I can still see my doctor as opposed to seeing a doctor that knows nothing about me. Telehealth also saw great advancements and should not be confused with telemedicine. Telehealth includes a broad range of technologies and services to provide patient care and improve the healthcare delivery system as a whole. As example, hospitals may use telehealth systems to monitor patients and send alerts to doctors and nurses. In some cases, the doctors and nurses don't even have to be located in the hospital itself. I'm sure there's risks for both telemedicine and telehealth, and I'm sure these risks are being measured and worked on. But the biggest risk to me is not having had these solutions in a time when we really needed them. Tune in next week for more advancements in technology or email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm talking with Robin Lorenzini. She's the president of the Lorenzini Family Foundation. And um, Robin, you know, during the break, we were chatting a little bit about what I think is a very unique um, part of your life story is the fact that you experienced both sides of um, feeling not feeling you were a minority living in Hawaii and looking and and being very much different from your peers to then moving to upstate New York where everyone you know looked the same as you so how my guess is in you know it might be an obvious question that it's given you the empathy for those that feel or are minorities but explain how you know that helps shape your own perspective about people culture and society yeah, that's a that's a really really good question. Uh, if you take those two areas that I lived in, they were both extremes. You know, in one I was minority and I was definitely on the outside and felt that on every single day. And then we moved to Del Mar, New York, which is outside of Albany, where um, Literally, all of the girls had the exact same purse we wore. We dressed the same. Everything was the same. We were all white. It was as middle-class America, white America as you can possibly get. And neither of those situations felt comfortable to me, right? In one, it was yeah. there was no, no sense of belonging in Hawaii. I didn't feel like I belonged there. I felt an outsider. And then in upstate New York, it was a false belonging, Right. It was a belonging just based on my skin color and um, where we were and where we lived. It had very little to do. There was no room left in there for individuality and who you wanted to be. Mm -hmm. That was 100 percent tamped down on. And the um, the cultural norms were extremely clear. And to set out to step outside of them. Um, trust me, you felt the backlash from that quite a bit. Yeah. And, and there's no room for, for growth there. Right. So tell me, did you as a young girl fall prey to that, um, what I'll say is mimicking, you know, all of your friends <laughs> and peers, you know, we still see that today. Or did you kind oh, of, yeah. or did you, you know, forge your own path? So that's, that's actually a really interesting question. Um, the answer is yes and no. So the, the other thing that you can't tell by, you know, because we're not sitting in the same room, unfortunately, is that I'm six foot tall and I have been tall my entire life. 
And um, if you are literally five or six inches taller than all of the other girls and you're two or three inches taller than all of the other boys that you're growing up with, it's hard right. to, to fit in, right? So I bet, yes, um, yes. That, that was definitely challenging. Having said that, of course, I tried to wear all the things that all the girls were wearing and talk the way the girls were talking, et cetera which worked only to a certain extent because I had a mother who, you know, as I said, um, she, you know, she graduated uh, uh, valedictorian from Mount Holyoke. She got married. She had four children in five and a half years and then proceeded to get her Ph.D. starting at University of Hawaii. um, And then she was doing it cross island and then completed her entire Ph.D. from upstate New York, literally mailing in her assignments. (laughs) It took her seven and a half years. Wow. So this was this was my role model as a woman who. Um, was very, very, you know, obviously wanted me to have friends and everything, but made it very clear that um, the most important thing was to um, work on your education, um, to develop yourself intellectually, and to pay Mm. attention to who you are as an individual. So there was always that... um, that sense of not of wanting to, you know, wanting to be a part of this. But because of my experience in Hawaii and because of my mother as a role model, I knew that I was not going to be one of these same girls that was growing up in Del Mar, New York. Yeah. Wow. That that's a good mom right there. You know, I mean, you know, as a mother and, you know, by the way, you have three daughters of your own. I do. Yeah. I I want to talk a little bit about them later in the show. But um, I think that messaging sometimes, you know, when we're young, we don't always listen to the messaging from the parents. We're listening to our friends. But um, you were doing both. And tell me, you know, having three older brothers who I understand have are very impressive and accomplished. How has that helped you with your own confidence in life? That's actually, um, it's absolutely critical. And combined with my mother, and I don't want to detract from my father at all. He was a major influence in my life, too. But my three older brothers um, and the fact that education was incredibly important in our family, our dinner table was often kind of like defending a PhD dissertation. And so (laughs) (laughs) no pressure there. (laughs) No pressure there. Yes, it was. You better come with your A game because you were going to get you were going to get sometimes attacked and sometimes lovingly encouraged. Um, But that actually what it ended up doing is I can be at the table with um, any men or any women at any time. And I and I feel comfortable because there was nothing growing up about you're the girl in the family. It is you're a part of this family. You are um, uh, you're expected to hold your own in this family, and um, no one's going to ever make you feel less than because you're a girl. Because we just don't see that in you. Yeah, and, that's and, awesome. I, I I'm picturing those dinner tables where they wanted oh. to talk to you more. You know, then more than about, you know, the next party you're going to or what you're wearing. Oh, that was not that was never a part of the conversation at all. It was never a part of the conversation. And in fact, I remember hearing at one point in time, 
someone said something about women not speaking in science classes and math classes because they didn't want to seem smarter than the guys. And I remember laughing. Wow. Saying, that's not a thing. Who's, that's not a that's thing. Not a thing. <laughs> and, it's not a thing in my house. looking at me like, are you crazy? I'm like, that's not a thing. No one would ever think that way. So that was a real I, gift that yeah. I was given. That's awesome. I love that. Um, listen, we're going to go into our next break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about your decision to go to IMD in Switzerland and what led yeah. to that. We'll be right back with Robin Lorenzini. Now, the women to watch, Military Watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. You know, there are about 2 million military connected children in the United States. What makes the current generation of military kids different is that they've endured their parents' or guardians' deployments to combat zones throughout the entirety of their childhood. This reality, plus the historical challenges, like moving every few years, creates unique needs for these children. Reconnecting with parents after long absences is one of those challenges, affecting both the military parent and the child. The National Military Family Association hosts its Operation Purple programs each year. These programs consist of free weeks of summer camp for military kids to connect with kids just like them, and family retreats where military families have the time and space to get reacquainted. And then there's the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, or TAPS. It is the nation's leading organization addressing the most challenging experience for military children, the death of a loved one. Since 1994, TAPS has provided compassionate care and resources to help grieving families. Led by experts in child development, mental health, and education, TAPS Youth Program provides safe spaces for for military children to explore grief and embrace healing. As we close out this month of the military child, I'd like to leave you with this. If you are a family member, a neighbor, or a colleague of a service member who has kids, reach out to see how the children are doing and how the family is doing. These kids are incredibly resilient, but the stress and anxiety often live well below the surface. Military children deserve respect, admiration and support because they hand over the most important person in their lives to our country. They lend us their parents and loved ones. Now, the women to watch. Nonprofit Watch. Hi, I'm Cheryl Mackey from United Way of Greater Philadelphia and Southern New Jersey. Local businesses have been a staple of economies worldwide since people began trading for goods and services. And they provide many advantages to the economy where they operate, including helping to preserve the local economy. The advantage of local businesses is that more of the money spent at a local business stays in the local area. A study conducted in all Austin, 2003, by the American Independence Business Alliance, found that for every $100 spent at a nationwide chain store, only $13 stayed in the local economy. However, out of every $100 spent at a locally owned and operated business, approximately $45 stays in the local economy, which provides a significant boost to other local businesses workers, and families within the community. There are over 31 million small businesses across the United States, and small businesses employ nearly half of the country's population, 47.1% of workers, 
as of 2017. According to the latest data from the U.S. Small Business Administration, with so many jobs on the line, it's clear why small business closures during the pandemic could have a huge ripple effect on employment and the overall economy. And many of them have closed, at least temporarily. A survey conducted by Main Street America in late March and early April of 2020 found that 80% of small businesses have been closed for some period of time, and nearly 60% said their revenue had decreased by more than 75% since the start of the pandemic. Fortunately, a follow-up survey conducted by Main Street America in August found that most businesses had re reopened with less than 10% of respondents stating that they had permanently closed. United Way of Greater Philadelphia and Southern New Jersey Small Business Individual Development Assets Program, or IDA, will aim to help low to moderate income small business owners gain access to capital without having to take on additional debt. United Way's goal is to support small business owners to increase operations that yield greater levels of productivity. The program offers participants incentive savings matches, personal finance, and money management education, peer and staff support, and an individual counseling in order to make asset ownership attainable. If you want more information about United Way's Individual Development Asset Program for Small Businesses, please contact www.unitedforimpact.org. Thank you. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My guest is Robin Lorenzini, the president of the Lorenzini Family Foundation. And I wanted, I have to tell you, Robin, I wasn't familiar with, with IMD, the school um, in Switzerland. And yeah. of course, when I read about it, I thought, tell me where that decision came from for you to go there for school. <laughs> so I met a guy in a bar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. My my uh, my. That's actually true. My husband and I both went to Duke University during the same four years, but didn't know each other. He was an engineer. I was in the liberal arts college. Uh, he was in the Greek system. I wasn't in the Greek system. But I was uh, working on my PhD at Duke, and he came back to visit a friend. And there's a one-room bar called the Hideaway, and I met him. And um, we he was on his way over to set up a division of KLA Industries in first in Germany and then in Switzerland. And we proceeded to talk on the phone and actually send each other faxes back and forth because oh, email, wasn't, yes. email wasn't a thing. Right, yeah, right. it was incredible. And I ended up um, getting, I went over to visit him and a couple of the professors at Duke um, who actually their names were John Forsyth and Rich Burton, which always cracked me up. Um, they had worked at this research institute in Lausanne, Switzerland, and I went over just to meet with the head of, um, of a project called Manufacturing 2000 and talked to him. And he said, would you come and do a, a year? Would you come and do research for us? And I said, sure. And <laughs> went over there and, and Court and I were living in Neuchâtel and I would commute uh, 40 minutes down to this research institute where they were flying me around Europe in order to do case studies of manufacturing companies. And it was incredible and amazing. Wow. 
Well, I, I would say that I'm sure, you know, you met the right man at the right bar at the right time. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, exactly. As a, listen, uh, Robin, as a graduate student, you earned a degree in organizational mm-hmm. behavior. Um, I know what that is, but I would think some of our listeners may not. Can you talk about, you may know, not do it. what, what is that? And, and what, you know, um, got you interested in that? Yeah, well, that was, and I should be clear, I never completed my degree, so I don't want to falsify and say that I actually did do it, but I've I've done doctoral work in it, and it it is something that, although it has continued with me throughout my entire life, so organizational behavior is is kind of like saying what is engineering, right? There's a, there's an overarching, uh, um, understanding of it, but then there are multiple pieces and organizational behavior is at the macro level. How do industries work amongst themselves and how do they compete and how do they exist in this ecosystem? And then you can all go all all the way down to the micro, which is what is the importance of leadership practices and how do leaders impact organizations and then everything in between. And I was particularly interested in the power of groups Mm -hmm. in terms of moving organizations forward and in particular excuse me, organizational stories and how they interweave into groups. And that is absolutely something that I'm still in, um, still involved with. As a matter of fact, uh, Duke Technology Scholars, otherwise known as DTech, which is a, um, an organization that we're very much involved with. I was talking with a, a number of them the other night, and we were talking about the power of storytelling within mm-hmm. Not only how we speak to ourselves, what stories we tell ourselves, but what are the stories within our workplace, our companies, or the stories about women in the workplace, and how are, how are those affecting how we're showing up and what we believe about ourselves? And that is such a rich topic that I can just get diverted into and talk to for hours and hours and hours. Well, I, I would be happy to, to dive into that with you and talk about that for hours and hours. Yeah. Um, it is fascinating. And I think it, there's so much that is been brought to light in today's world around that. And actually, um, you shared an article by Paul Shoemaker that, that states, mm-hmm. you know, women leaders have a higher capacity for complexity than men do. Yeah. Talk about that. Yep. And yeah. And, and, you know, Maybe um, examples of how you've seen that throughout your own career. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, any woman that you say that to just nods and says, uh, yeah, <laughs> and of course. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that we are right. Exactly. Particularly any of us who are mothers, um, that you're the necessity to multitask and to pay attention to, uh, you know, thousands of different things that are going on at any given time is in our thing that we are um, rewarded for and expected of us in a way that I don't think it necessarily is for men. Um, I believe that things are changing around that, and that's a good thing. Right. 
But we are the, the conflicting stories that are told to us as women out there in the work world make us have to deal with multiple changing realities at any given time. You know, for, for instance, as one of the DTEC scholars was saying that one of the stories out there is that women are promoted to managers because they relate to people better and are more empathetic and are interested in bringing people along. But then at the same time, the story is women are not promoted to managers because they aren't competent in what it is that they do. And so how do you hold, how do you hold these two stories out there and say, where is my space in all of this? How is it that I'm fitting into here? Who am I and how am I going to show up? Mm. Listen, we're going to go into another break. When, <clears throat> I want to talk about exactly that when we come back, um, you know, what the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute is doing to help yes. in, in this arena. And then, of course, I want to talk about the foundation. Stay with us, and I'll be yeah. back with Robin Lorenzini. Stay with us for our watch team. Now the women to watch. Legal Watch. This is Nicole Hitner at Ballard Spar for your Legal Watch. Last week, I told Women to Watch listeners that the implications of the Chauvin trial would have wide-reaching effects on multiple legal facets in our nation. One unprecedented development was the live streaming. Every moment from jury selection to verdict reading was available in real time to anyone who cared to tune in. A major player in making that happen was my law partner, Lita Walker. She hosted a webinar on Friday along with the senior managing editor and vice president of the Star Tribune, Suki Dardarian, senior counsel for the New York Times, Dana Green, senior field producer for Court TV, Grace Wong, and the commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Corrections, Paul Schnell. Chuck Tobin moderated. On the webinar, they unpack the events of the weeks leading up to the verdict, from the triumph of having a live stream trial to the unrest while the trial was in progress, to the ongoing efforts by media to obtain juror names and trial exhibits, along with camera access in future trials. The public and the press have a First Amendment right to attend criminal trials, with few exceptions, but the law isn't yet definitive on extending that right to audiovisual devices. In fact, over the past several decades, it's been a topic of hot debate, and in Minnesota, no cameras are allowed unless the state, the prosecutors, and the defendant all agree to allow them. Certainly in this case, the pandemic played a significant role in that decision. There's so much information here. I strongly encourage you to go to ballardspar.com and watch the recording of the webinar. It's free and it's important. This is Nicole Hittner at Ballard Spar with your Legal Watch. Coming up next is our Coach's Corner podcast, which is a shorter version of our weekly show and can be heard wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm BJ Gray with this week's Coach's Corner. My new online leadership development course is different than all others. The concepts and tools I teach to help you deal with challenges that rise up in your career are completely different. You become so much more in control and accountable to what's going on in your job that everything becomes easier and more satisfying. And it all starts with a deep dive into personal awareness. That is what makes you stronger. Doing a self-inventory will help you understand your innate behaviors and your habitual behaviors and learn how to change your behavior so that you can be the best version of yourself while at work, dealing with challenging people and dealing with challenging projects. You see, we can't control other people. We can't control our past because it's already done. And a lot of times we can't control what's going on around us, but we can control how we think about all of these things. And that's where you have more power and will create the right behavior to deal with it. You see, you have to know how to lead yourself before you can lead others in business. So check out my new online course at bjgray.com. Thanks for listening to this edition of Coach's Corner. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn or at bjgray.com. Until next time, I'm BJ from Coach's Corner.
Now, more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. I'm so thrilled and honored to have as my guest this evening, Robin Lorenzini, again, the president of the Lorenzini Family Foundation. And of course, as an alum of Villanova University, I was thrilled um, to read about your donation to the school and specifically your work on the board with the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute, which is just, I'm so excited about it and the work that they're doing. So, um, Tell me, you know, what you hope to bring as a board member and with that donation to that school. Yeah, I I cannot say enough about Terry and Danielle who are uh, running the Institute. They are just exceptional, exceptional women and are uh, making an incredible impact on the excuse me, the female students and, in fact, the institute at, or sorry, the university at, at the biggest level. And what we are, what we as a foundation are bringing to it is, is twofold. One is we were extremely excited to partner with them on um, a lead, amb- leadership ambassador program, and that's being headed up by Danielle. And her tagline, I think, says it all when she talks about it. She says to these young women, leadership is not a position. And I heard that and just about started jumping up and down saying, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, because we as we as women think, OK, when I'm CEO of a Fortune 500 company and I have, um, you know, 10,000 people reporting to me, then I will be a leader. And that's not it at all. But right. leadership right. starts with you with you finding a passion for something that you're interested in and learning more about it and raising awareness for it. And that's being a leader. And so um, we have 20, about 20 ambassadors every year that go through and there's an entire program helping them to come up with a topic that they want to learn about and then helping them figure out ways in order to teach people and to get into the role of being a leader about this particular topic. It really honestly doesn't matter what it is, because if you have a passion for it, then get out there and let everyone know. That's right. And that's so I, I, yeah, right. Finding your voice, you know, that's mm-hmm. what I would add mm-hmm. to it. And I think that for young girls and women, historically, you know, we have um, these capabilities and these ideas and very, very needed um, work to do, but have been afraid, I would say, to raise our hands and speak yes. up, and, right? Yes. So yes. Um, that's what I think the program is doing really well. I want to, you know, Robin, you're in a position um, leading this family foundation to be able mm. to give to causes you care about. What does that feel like for you to be able to do that, to pick and choose and give financially? It's- it's really honestly the dream, and one of the things that we believe about in the foundation is is um, that money should not be given more credit than, than what it is due, right? Money should be an instrument that is used to do things, but really honestly, the work that people are doing, that should get 99.999% of the, of the, um, the credit and the yes. attention, and the money is, is literally just flipping a switch. And let's not give it any more credit than what it is. Um, and and to be able to find people that you believe in and women, we are supporting mostly women, 
um, to find women that we believe in and to be able to give that small portion that it, that they need is a joy beyond joy. You know, it was through Terry that we, we found out about um, IGR also, which is being run by Dr. Terry Nance, who is now one of the senior vice presidents of Villanova and um, an incredible, incredible woman. And they have taken a program from Michigan that actually helps people in order to, helps people to learn to build trust yes. and then listen to each other and then actually introduce very tough topics because that is what our country needs more than anything is for people to be able to come come together and understand each other. Mm -hmm. And one of the most exciting things that we're doing at the foundation is that we are, um, we are funding so that people taking this IGR program is going to be required for every single, every single Villanova student and faculty member graduate and undergraduate programs. And that could have a huge impact out in the world. I have no doubt. And I'm, you know, really looking forward to following all of the progress and the things that they're implementing there. Um, Mm. Robin, we're at the end of the show. I I really wish we had more time. I'll have to bring you back again. Yes. And um, thanks so much for sharing your story with Candor. And uh, please stay in touch. Thank you, Susan. And thanks for all you're doing for women. Your show is amazing. Thank you so much. That is it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Stay tuned next week for my interview with Danelle Dixon, the CEO of the Stellar Development Foundation. Have a great week, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.